with even a basic level of familiarity with the Bible, will tell you that it's broken into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament records the history of God's people before the coming of Jesus Christ, while the New Testament tells of history and the teachings of what takes place on and after the time frame of Jesus' life. But there is a period of history that takes place between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a period of about 400 years where no prophets were living, where no scripture was being written. So there's a 400-year period of what people look back and call silence, where God is not telling about the day-to-day things of history. We call it the intertestamental period between the two testaments. But it's only partly true that it could be considered a period of time where God has been silent. I say partly true because while To be sure, no prophets lived during that day that were recording sacred scripture. We do have accounts given from other prophets, namely Daniel, who tell us about hundreds of years of that 400-year period. So we do, in fact, know what was taking place at that time. We're in Daniel chapter 11 and have been making our way through this book. We're almost at the end of this entire book. Uh, It only makes it through chapter 12 which is actually still part of the same vision we're covering now. Daniel uh, has been crying out to God to understand the vision that he had. An angel was dispatched by God, arrives to tell Daniel of this vision. And there are two chapters of the angel speaking, telling Daniel what what will happen after his day. Daniel lived during the days of Persia, and he's told what will happen after Persia and into Greece all the way up until the days of Jesus. Last week, we made our way through the rest of chapter 11, or the uh, the first half of chapter 11, which told us a bit about the time period from Persia up until Alexander the Great and beyond. Persia passed its power over to Alexander the Great, the Greek Macedonian ruler. After he dies at a young age, the rule is split into fourths. But Daniel's vision really only looks at two of those the Seleucid Empire in Syria and Babylon and those western regions, and then the Ptolemaic Empire, which is comprised of the lands that were, used, that were previously reigned by Egypt. Israel then was the borderland between the north and the south. That was the way they had to pass through, was between Israel, and so it was trampled repeatedly as nations went to war. Last week, we kind of did a whole history lesson, just reading through the text. That's what the text was telling us, all the things that had happened during that time period, about 150 years of Greek period of time we covered last week. And continually, these nations went to war against each other. Our text took us up till the lifetime of Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, as he's known in history, and up until his death. Antiochus III was defeated at the Battle of Magnesia by the Romans. The Romans were an up-and-coming force. They were growing more and more influence in the Mediterranean area. Greece was starting to realize that they were going to be overshadowed by Rome. And so they went to war. Greece lost. As a consequence of this defeat, the Romans demanded that Antiochus III pay tribute. We're going to let you live. We're going to let you march off this battlefield and go back to your home and not attack you immediately. You pay tribute to us. And to make sure that you don't get any funny ideas, we're going to take as hostage the prince. And so Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, is taken hostage into Rome and held 
until his father continues to pay off those Romans with the tribute. Antiochus III then scoured his land for money to pay. He needed the tribute. He taxed his people, even looted their sacred shrines. In fact, Antiochus III died, was stabbed in the back while trying to sack a temple in the eastern portions of his empire in order to pay off the Roman Empire. The throne was passed to his son. And that's where we pick up today. I want to go ahead and just pray for our time in this particular text. And then we're going to go through a few verses at a time. A couple of times I'm going to give you big chunks because they're kind of just large pieces of history we'll talk about in one big turn. And then I'm going to conclude with just a few points of application that I think we can take from this today. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love and trust your word. Teach us to understand this not just as interesting facts from history, but try to help us, help, help us to try to understand what really went down and why this is recorded for us, why this was foretold to Daniel hundreds of years before these events would take place, and why it is still written for us to read today about what you were accomplishing in and through your people at that time. Lord, that's a supernatural ask. And so, as usual, we ask for you to provide your Spirit's help and guidance for us to gain all that we need for today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 20 through 35. You can follow along there. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. You can go ahead and put that, that first one up there so people can read along with me. The one who shall arise in his place is referring to Seleucus IV, who's replacing his now dead father, Antiochus III. Early in his reign, Seleucus was a very favorable leader to the Jews. He permitted them to keep all of their laws and customs, and even gave financial gifts to the Jewish high priest Onias at the time in order to fund temple services and sacrifices. And so he kept up a tradition that had been established long before him of permitting the local religions and the populations to operate basically as they had prior to Greek rule, prior to here Seleucid rule. You might remember last week I said that Antiochus III, Seleucus' father, didn't do so great a job of that in southern Israel. And so uh, it did turn out a little poorly for the people there for a period of time. Now Seleucus says, you know, I'm going to be a friend to the Jewish people. We're going to get along great. And so far, so good, at least for the first few years of his reign. But then down in Jerusalem, the high priest Onias at the time got into a disagreement with the captain of the guard a man whose name was Simon of the tribe of Benjamin. And this Simon, who was an elite, he had a lot of power and influence, uh, he actually goes to the local governor, the local Greek governor, and says, hey, just want you to know that this Onias is sitting on a boatload of cash in the temple treasury, and it's not cash that's dedicated for sacrifices, so you can actually go take that and give it to the king if you so want. Now, it was actually a benevolence fund. It was designed to be given for the orphans and the widows. That was kind of the purpose of it. But this word makes its way back to Seleucus. And remember, Seleucus is in war debt. He has to pay the Romans. Antiochus IV had been the hostage. But once his father died, Antiochus was not the first son of the king. Seleucus was. They, did, they wanted a prince. They didn't just want the brother of the king. So they traded Antiochus IV for Seleucus' son, Demetrius. So long story short, they trade one prince for the prince of the next king who's ruling. Antiochus gets out of hostage situation. Demetrius is now there. And so in order to keep his son alive and to pay tribute, 
So Lucas is thinking all this money in the temple treasury should be his. So he sends an exactor of tribute, exactor of tribute, like it says in verse 20. This man's name is Heliodorus. And to acquire the money, Heliodorus comes to Jerusalem and makes his intention clear to the people there that essentially he's going to rob the temple treasury. So I want you to know, I'm going to be back tomorrow, have the money ready because I'm taking it back to Greece with me. Now, there's a story in the Apocrypha. That's those texts that are not canon. We don't believe they're Holy Spirit-inspired. Our Roman Catholic friends do think that, but we, we don't see that, uh, that tell of this period of time. And they tell of what happens during that, that time period in the first, second, and third Maccabees. And so we're going to refer to those a little bit because they are very helpful historical books. One of the stories in Second Maccabees records what happens when Heliodorus arrives at the temple. A whole bunch of Jews got together that day. They were crying out to God. They were praying. They were surrounding the temple just crying, Lord, don't let them take this from us. Heliodorus tries to get in, and this is the claim that he made. That as he sought to enter into the temple treasury to take the money, he was met with a vision of three angels that manifested themselves physically. One was on a horse, two had swords, and they physically pummeled Heliodorus, like beat him up, knocked to the ground. He tried to stand up, they knocked him down again, and physically drove him out of the temple. At least this is the story he takes back with him, empty-handed to Seleucus. And he gets back to his king and goes, hey, hey, sorry, O king, I failed your mission. But, 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 but it was because their God kept me out. And if you're going to send anybody else, Make sure it's an enemy of yours because their God will not be happy. Now, we don't know whether or not Seleucus bought this story or not. And it's kind of inconsequential because shortly thereafter, Heliodorus assassinates King Seleucus. And so Seleucus is now out of the picture. And that's why it says here that within a few days, he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. He was assassinated. Going on, the story continues in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. A contemptible person arises next. In his place, Seleucus dies and a contemptible person takes his seat. This contemptible person is one of the most important and infamous characters in all of Jewish history. This is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus, Antiochus, same character. And throughout Jewish history, there may perhaps not be any other man who hated the Jews as much as this one did. Epiphanes was called that. That word, that name just simply means God manifest or God revealed. Now, while it seems especially blasphemous for a man to have that title which for the record it is, it was not uncommon for the kings of that day to have that kind of title. Uh, even the pharaohs down in Egypt called themselves pharaoh. Those Ptolemies down in Egypt called themselves that because they thought of themselves as sons of the gods. They were divine beings. Some of the other contemporaries of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, had the surname Soter, which means savior. And so others had these kinds of names attached to them. But he was known by the Jewish people as Epimenes. Epimenes, which means madman. And we're going to see in a little bit why the Jewish people would have called him a madman. The text here tells us that he, uh, he was a man who was contemptible, and yet royal majesty was not given to him. There have been plenty of legitimate despotic rulers in history. 
This one was both despotic and illegitimate. And some of that will play in as we continue on. But he was not the rightful legal heir after the death of his brother. It's not the way that king's succession goes. It goes to the son. There were actually two other heirs that should have preceded Antiochus. The first we already mentioned, Demetrius, the son who's a hostage in Rome. And so they're not letting a king go or one who's in line. Hey, he's even better one to hold as hostage. So they don't let go Demetrius. Now there's a who's going to be the king next. Well, Seleucus had another son, a younger son, whose name was also Antiochus, just to confuse everybody. But that Antiochus was an infant at that time. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he leverages his way into power. This little baby can't help you. I will, I will take on the mantle of leadership for now. Wasn't long until that little boy dies. Antiochus then takes the throne. He illegally claimed it for himself and obtained the affirmation of his rule by the other political elites through bribery and through flattery. And that's what we see. He shall come in without warning. He's the third in line. At the closest, there was actually a queen and a daughter, two more Laodiceans that probably should have taken over even before him. And yet somehow, whoa, whoa how, did, how did Epiphanes become the king so quickly? He obtained the kingdom not by right, not by royal majesty granted, but by flatteries. Now you need to notice this because he's not called a king in the rest of this telling, except for maybe in one verse, verse 27, it refers to a pair of kings and he's probably one of the two being talked about there. But he's never by himself ever referred to as a king. And this is important as we'll see next week. It's not gonna play in so much right now, but he's not a legitimate king. Every other king, every other ruler that's been mentioned so far in chapter 11, of the history of all these kings. It's been called the king. The next king arises. The king arises. Now this one says, a contemptible person shall arise, one who has not been given royal majesty. So log this. It won't play in suit so much this week, but next week. And I'm sure you'll think of nothing else until then. So thank you for remembering that. Verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now, this verse is just a bit of a summary that introduces what's about to be unpacked over the next 12 verses. So we'll say this quick and we'll move on to what, what uh, this is unpacked. It speaks to his wars with the Egyptians in the south. The armies there, that's what it says. Armies shall be swept away before him. And eventually, his notorious assault on the Jewish people, that's the prince of the covenant. I think that almost certainly refers to the Jewish high priest Onias of the day. And we're going to get to him soon. We'll pause right now. We'll get to him when, he, when the text uh, allows. And I'll explain why I think he's called the prince of the covenant when we get there. But first, let's read through the armies that utterly have been swept away before him. This speaks of the Sixth Syrian War. Sixth Syrian War. When yet again, the Seleucid Empire came south, invaded Egypt, and it tells of what happens. I'm going to read of that campaign in one fell swoop. That's verses 23 through 27. And the single campaign is kind of listed at that time. Follow along. It's two slides here. I'm going to read through it in entirety, and then we'll break it down. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. That probably refers to the fact that he doesn't deserve the right of rule. He pretends as though he's just going to care for and kind of be a, a steward for this, his young infant nephew at this time. Of course, that's not at all in his mind, so he's deceiving people. And a small group of elites say that he is the rightful king, and therefore he takes control. 
Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. This tells of that sixth Syrian war, Syrian war, yet another one of those wars between the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, on this particular occasion, it was actually the Ptolemy who was ruling in the south at the time, Ptolemy VI, who was preparing to make his way into Syrian-controlled territory. And he's thinking, hey, this is, a, this is a small territory. It's south of Israel. It's pretty far from the main Seleucid Empire and all of its armies. We can probably get a way of taking just this one little territory. And so this Ptolemy king uh, gathers his forces, prepares to essentially invade Syrian-occupied territory. But Antiochus heard about it. And he was able to get prepared and get his army together before the Ptolemies invaded. And so he arises, he arrives just at the right time. And he fights back against them with such ferocity. Not only does he crush this army that, is, that has come up, that army was called in this text here an exceedingly great and mighty army. And yet they did not survive, they did not win. This Antiochus drove his forces, Ptolemy's forces, farther into Egypt. And Antiochus actually takes over city after city after city, territory after territory, until he has taken all of the mighty cities of Egypt except for Alexandria alone, which was a feat that none of his forebears were able to accomplish. He made it farther into the heart of Egypt than any of those who came before him. And that's what it said about his father's fathers. None of them have done that like he did. So much victory and succeeding. Even though there was a large army, they couldn't do anything about it. And why? Why is it that they were swept away? Many shall fall down slain. And it happened for a reason. It says here in verse 25, the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. Why? For plots shall be devised against him. So it wasn't just that he didn't have a strong enough army. But his kingdom, his rule, was fracturing. I said before that Alexandria was the lone mighty city that had not been captured. Alexandria was the country's capital at the time. Alexandria is where all the elites and all the rest of the royal, uh, uh, royal family were housed and where they lived. It was the most prominent city of the land. And the people, when they heard that Antiochus was winning these battles, uh, that Ptolemy VI was losing these battles. His name was Ptolemy Philometer, which means lover of mother. Uh, Mother's Day reference for you there, so there you go. This guy loved his mother. Uh, Ptolemy uh, Philometer was losing these battles. They hear about it, and rather than send aid, rather than send reinforcements to double down and help their king, they break away and establish a new king in his place, his brother Ptolemy VIII. Now Ptolemy VI is on the east being beaten up by Antiochus, and instead of receiving aid, they devised plots and plans against him, and now there's two kings ruling in Egypt, which has effectively divided their forces, making them weaker. Now, you might remember last week, I said that the previous Seleucid king, and I know it's hard to keep track of all of the kings, the previous northern king sent his daughter Cleopatra 
down to Egypt to marry the Ptolemy who was ruling then. Well, that's this Ptolemy, his mother. Cleopatra was Antiochus Epiphany's sister. That means that this Ptolemy who's in battle is actually Antiochus's nephew. So Antiochus is battling against his nephew. And rather than, after destroying and taking over his armies, rather than killing his nephew, he uses his family influence and says, I'll leave you alive as long as you work for me. And essentially, he's going to set him up as a puppet ruler. And they're going to gather together. They're going to convene at a conference together. Antiochus and Ptolemy, now that the Egyptian empire is split in half, and Antiochus is going to make an agreement. They're going to have a truce together. Antiochus will say, listen, as long as you remain loyal to me, pay tribute to me, I'll let you stay in power in eastern Egypt here, and together we'll eventually leverage out that other usurper, that your brother who's in uh, Alexandria. Eventually we'll take him over and this will all work out well. And at the same time, Ptolemy says, well, hey, sounds great. I'll be on your side and together we'll throw over my, overthrow my brother and don't worry, it's going to go well for you that you let me live. And that's what it says in verse 27. As for the two kings, that's probably Antiochus and Ptolemy VI, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. Not surprising that kings would do this with each other. But to no avail, for the end is not yet to be at the time appointed. There's another reference to the time appointed that will be coming. I think this refers to the conclusion of all the Greek empire that will make, it, make the way for Jesus coming onto the scene. Moving forward, we'll see what happens. Verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So here's this Antiochus. Here's this contemptible person. He won all these battles. He sets up a puppet ruler. He takes all their wealth and the, the, the plunder and the spoil, and he brings it back with him on his way to Syria, passing through Jerusalem, passing through Israel once again. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. This Antiochus hates Judaism, and we're going to see that soon enough. I said earlier in verse 22 that Onias, the high priest of the day, was the one who was ruling. And back in this day, there was no king over the civil uh, realm of Israel. The highest authority in the land was the high priest. And that's what prince means. Arche, it means, it means in Greek, it'd be arche, it'd be ruler, it'd be one who's in charge. And so this high priest was ruling. He was a prince of the covenant. He was the ruler of the covenant people of God. That's what Onias was. And he actually was a Levite. All the way back to the days of Moses when the covenant was first established. It was made clear that it must be a man who was a Levite in the family line of Aaron who would be permitted to be the high priest. This Onias was in a rightful position as high priest. But when Antiochus made his way back up through Jerusalem, he removed Onias from his rightful position. And instead, he sold the role to the highest bidder. In this particular case, the highest bidder ended up being Onias' brother, uh, who will become the high priest Joshua, Joshua, the high priest Joshua. Now, Joshua actually changes his name to Jason, and so he's known in history as the high priest Jason. If you research him, you'll find Jason is the one being referred to, and he changed his name to Jason because it was Greek, and he was trying to distance himself from his Hebrew roots and instead wanted to be known as a Greek, and that name change alone should tell you all that you need to know about this character in history up to this point. 
He loved Greek culture and influence. And he wanted the whole nation to become more Greek. He began to use his newly purchased influence to Hellenize or to make more Greek the people. He built Greek education centers in order to train the elitist youth to want to love Greece more than Judaism. He even built a gymnasium, a short stone's throw away from the temple, in order to conduct business and to teach people in the ways of Greek life. And if you know anything about ancient gymnasiums, that was where uh, these Greeks and then eventually the Romans would gather together. They'd do a lot of their, their business deals would be worked out there. Political bargains would be, ma- be made. That's where you got together. That was literally the good old boys club of the day. And it was the place that all the stuff happened. By establishing these things, he intentionally tries to turn the Jewish nation into Greeks. He was even authorized by Antiochus to appoint local authorities and politicians based on whoever sided with his agenda. He could overthrow whatever elders were in in authority in their towns, and he could establish the Greek leaders to be the ones who were advocating for justice. Antiochus, during this time, even held a mock Olympics, which was very Greek of him, in the city of Antioch, named after his family line. And Jason, the high priest, sends a Jewish delegation to go do this, which was against their laws for a number of reasons. But he sends the men up there to go, uh, to go compete in these Olympics. And in so doing, he also sends money to offer a sacrifice to the Greek god Heracles, who the Romans were called Hercules. This high priest literally shows his cards, makes it very clear that he does not love and honor God, but in fact, he wants his people to worship pagan gods instead. Do you remember how many times in the Old Testament God warned his people, do not be like the nations around you. Don't do it. All, every time that the nations went bad, uh, that the, the people of Israel went, went poorly, everything went downhill, is because they were trying to adopt the foreign gods of false nations or the practices of false nations. In fact, many of us, as we read through the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws, the civil laws, how they plant their crops, the kind of clothes they wear, the way they're supposed to operate in in commerce with each other, sometimes it's difficult to understand. The reason that God established these laws was to make them stand out as different from all those nations around them. Don't try to be like your neighbors. This is a perennial temptation for the people of God in any age, ours included, to try to become more like the progressive culture around. Well, the real way towards progress is what the world says. And that's what this Jason did. He led the people towards godless culture, towards an influence of worldliness that so often comes from the ruling class so often comes from the elites in our cultures. That's what this high priest Jason did. Verse 29 and 30 tells us what happens next. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Antiochus has made his way all the way up into Syria, right? So he's passed through Israel. He's made all these messes in Jerusalem. He makes his way up to Syria, and then he finds out that Ptolemy down there was lying at the table just like he was. And these two brothers decide to work together once again and stand against Antiochus Epiphanes. And so he's enraged by this. And he makes his way back down to deal with the Egyptians again. But this time it shall not be as it was before. Remember, how was it before? Success, victory, 
Not this time. Antiochus will head south. But look what happens in verse 30. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Antiochus is on his way down to Egypt. And as he's heading to battle, he's met by a Roman delegation, headed by a Roman ambassador, a guy who was actually previously a senator. Gaius Popilius Laonis was his name. And Laonis came from Kittim. Kittim is on the eastern coast of Cyprus. It's a Roman-controlled territory. So Romans show up. And the way that the story is told in history is actually quite fascinating. I think it's told this way for a reason. It's not a mighty force that shows up. It's not a, it's not a, um, a, a guy who stands in front of him with military power with like a javelin in his hand and like those big Roman crest in the, the armor. It's a little old elderly senator. And, and, and Leonis at this time is wearing what you might imagine like a Roman senator to wear, like a toga. He's, not, he's like little, little flip-flops kind of things and the little crown. He's like, like little Caesar's pizza kind of, kind of character. That's what this guy probably looks like standing in front of Antiochus. And this matters because it's a little shaming. It's just this single guy and his little entourage with him. And he just, without an army, stands in front of Antiochus. And they convene in a quick conference there. And he tells Antiochus, I need you to know, Egypt is now under the protection of the Roman Empire. And so you have a choice to make. You can either retreat your way back to your little land of Syria, or you can continue on and find yourself at war with all of the might and power of Rome. It's actually said that at that time he grabs a stick, this Leonis, and he just walks around Antiochus drawing a a line, a circle all the way around him. And then in a shameful manner, he tells him, and I need the answer before you step outside of this circle. In fact, a lot of historians think that that's probably the origin of the idiom to draw a line in the sand. This was probably the most humiliating event of Antiochus' life. He knows he has no way to compete against Rome. He's already got them on his western borders up in Asia Minor. What we haven't seen here, because it doesn't apply really to Israel at this point, uh, he's fighting back the Parthian Empire on his northeastern front. And now in the south, these Egyptians have amassed more power, and the Romans are there too. And he's surrounded on three sides now. He has no possible way to manage the situation other than to retreat in humiliation. That's what happens. For ships of Kittim shall come against him. That's the delegation. He shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Kind of makes sense a little bit the psyche of a wicked and prideful king. He doesn't like being told no. doesn't like losing. And you can imagine the fury in this guy. He's got his whole army with him. He's ready to fight battles and, and, and lay siege to cities, and he's got all the supplies to do this, but he knows he's powerless to do anything, and he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And enraged, he takes action against the Holy Covenant. This is kind of like, this is displacement. You ever heard that in psychology? Or, uh, a guy gets, loses his job at work, gets home and kicks the cat. The cat didn't do anything wrong. Here's Antiochus making his way back up north and on his way back through Jerusalem. It'll be this trip that Antiochus Epiphanes earns his reputation as the most vile and wicked enemy that the Jewish people had ever encountered in history up to that point. That's so we see what happens next, verses 31 through 33. 
forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder." Verse 30 had told us that when he made his way back up into Jerusalem, he paid attention to those who violated the covenant. So on his way back in, he listened to the guys like Jason. He listened to, the, to those particular leaders and those ones who wanted the Greek influence to come in, who were undermining their faithful brothers and sisters, saying what, what foolish rubes these were that couldn't finally get on board with the new progressive plans of Greece. And Antiochus certainly sided with them. His patience with the Jews had run out, and he begins to actively exterminate the Jewish religion. He officially outlaws Judaism, and he enforces his new mandate swiftly and punishes without mercy. On this campaign, he was desperate to set up a loyal buffer nation between Egypt and Syria. If he was going to try to keep battling Rome in the northwest and Parthians in the east, and he was going to deal with all this, at the very least, he wanted loyal obedient, subservient subjects between him and Egypt. And he was willing to beat them into submission in the most brutal and ruthless means. He would not tolerate even the slightest infraction. He outlawed circumcision. He forbade sacrifices to God in the temple. He demanded that Jews work on the Sabbath. He even removed the high priest Jason, who although a worldly Hellenizer, he was at least a Levite. Antiochus installed a new high priest named Menelaus, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. They ordered the burning of the Torah, the Old Testament law and the prophets, and they even forced Jews to eat unclean animals. Essentially, everything that you and I could think of as Jewish in the Old Testament, Antiochus set himself against. On several occasions, he ordered his generals to outright murder massive numbers of Jews. And whenever they planned those kinds of massacres, they did so on the Sabbath, knowing that devout Jews would not pick up arms on the holy day. It would be easy prey. The most horrific of these massacres ended up with the destruction. 40,000 men were slaughtered, and 40,000 women and children were taken as slaves in a single day, in a single event. His hatred for the Jewish people is unmatched in ancient history. You and I can't find a time in the Old Testament where a leader had that level of power and hatred against the Jews. Seriously, we can look back in the days of the Exodus. They still wanted the, the slave labor. So Pharaoh did kill off some boys during a period of time because he wanted the rest to remain there. And he didn't tell them they can't be Jewish. They can't be Hebrew. Oftentimes throughout history, we saw different rulers, different leaders from outside of Israel who came in and took power. Assyria takes over the people. Babylon takes over the people. And even in the days of exile, they were permitted to do their religion. Daniel returns back into exile to worship his God. He doesn't even have to defile himself with the, 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 the food and the drink that were probably sacrificed to false gods. He's, he's allowed to eat what he wants so he can honor his God. There's only very brief, brief periods in history where they tell them to do something specifically that doesn't honor God. Remember the Daniel and the lion's den account? Because it's a very unique. One month, don't worship your God. Don't pray to your God. Just one. You can worship him any other time. Just not this one. Those events took place back then. It seems like many of those ancient rulers 
Well, they may have had a military might and anger against the people that were their enemies. No one hated Judaism with the same level as we see of this Antiochus. Even in the days of the Roman invasions, even in the destruction of the temple and the people in 70 AD, historians tell us about that that account, which comes centuries after this, the invaders didn't want that level of destruction. They didn't want to decimate the city. They didn't want to lay waste all the people. All the other territories Rome conquered, they let the people live. And they said time and time again to the people in Rome, just surrender. Yes, they'll have to pay tribute. Yes, we'll be making some changes you don't like. But you can survive. You can still worship your Yahweh God. I don't think anyone in biblical history can be said to have hated the Jews as much as Antiochus. And anyone who would not comply, any little tiny bit of non-compliance was met with horrific and atrocious anger. I told you before that some of the events that are listed here, much of this actually is recorded for us in the apocryphal books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. This, was, this is non-canonized text, but this is history. It's, it's helpful for us to see, and uh, most historians see, think these are probably pretty reasonably true accounts of what took place and what went down. I think that every Christian should at least one time in his or her life read through the apocryphal writings. There's just lots of interesting stuff in there that would be good for you to know for a variety of reasons. And some of it's just straight-up stories of faithful men and women who would not compromise their faith no matter what happened. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, I'm going to read for you just a few verses of this to tell us in history what happened then. After Antiochus made the decree to no longer be Jewish, this is what it says, according to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. It is true that many gave in. Many, as it says in verse 32, were seduced with flatteries. Those who violated the covenant. Some violated it. Some profaned God. Some denied and rejected their God and turned from Him because they were promised life or property or money or health and prosperity that could be provided by the Greeks at the time. But many stood firm. A willingness to die for truth was not hypothetical for the people in this day. I don't know about you, but when I think about the people of God who've been persecuted, at least that word intentionally, persecuted for their faith, I think of Christians since the days of Christ. And in my mind, I, I just, I'll, I'll confess to you, I don't oftentimes consider or think about persecution of the Old Testament people of God. And in large part because the overwhelming majority of bad things that happened to the people of God in the Old Testament... They were getting what they deserved. They turned from God. He says, if you, if you just worship me, I'll give you victory. I'll, I'll help pr- provide for you. I'll give you rain for your land. I'll heal this place. It'll go well for you in the land. And so when bad stuff happened then, you don't say, oh, poor Israel during the days of Babylon. No, they were getting what God said, judgment that they deserved. 
And so sometimes it's hard to remember. There were periods of time during that age when they were persecuted for their faith in God. And many gave their lives because they refused to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. That phrase, that clause is helpful because it reminds us it wasn't just hypothetical. It wasn't just, well, they were ready. They were ready. They, they were stubbornly ready to spit in the king's eye. And they did die. Perhaps the most notable moment here for the people as a whole took place on December 16th. 167 B.C., and that was what's referred to in verse 31. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's when Antiochus converted the temple in Jerusalem to a temple of Zeus. And he offered swine, unclean animal, on an altar to Zeus that was erected in that temple. And the Jews look back to this day, and they refer to this as the abomination of desolation. All of this is what sparked a response from a faithful few, and what we call the Maccabean Revolution. Look with me into the next couple verses. When they stumble, they, the people of God, the ones who are trying to remain wise, trying to convince others to stay true to God, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. There was a priest named Mattathias who lived in a city called Modin. It was about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, he had five adult sons. Mattathias was probably 80 years old when this, when this incredible account took place. He was known as being a very faithful guy, uh, uh, rigidly committed to the Torah, the, the, the Old Testament of God. A Seleucid official comes into town and demands that this elder, in order to make an example for all the other people, this Mattathias priest would offer a sacrifice of pig flesh to a false god. Mattathias refuses, will not do it. Well, another Jew quickly jumps forward and looks as though he assumes that if he, he offers the sacrifice, he'll be made the elder of the town. He'll be made the ruler. And so he, he's going to go offer the sacrifice. He runs forward to go do this. And Mattathias, this 80-year-old man, in a fit of rage in this moment, grabs a sword and slays that Jew dead, turns around and kills the Seleucid official and a couple of the other soldiers with him. The rest of the soldiers run off into the woods. And this spurs on a rebellion, a revolt that we know as the Maccabean Revolution. Maccabees, that, that's, uh, that means hammer. And his, one of his sons, Judas, takes on the, the mantle of leadership there over time. He's a mighty warrior. And it means hammer, hammer. He was Maccabees. He, he was Judas the hammer, could crush his enemies in this short-lived revolution. Mattathias said this. In 1 Maccabees 2, it tells us this. But Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commands, every one of them abandoning the religion of our ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. This influenced a lot of people. Some good guys, some bad guys got together. And they went to battle. They were masters of guerrilla warfare, often defeating the much larger Greek forces 
with superior strategy rather than brute force. They were kind of a, a Robin Hood and Merry Men type of forces that went up into the hills and into the mountains where, where they, they knew that they were at an advantage because they knew the land. and they, they, they could, The Greeks couldn't set up their typical phalanx system in order to fight in open warfare. And so they would oftentimes be outnumbered two or three or four to a man and still win. Word spread. Well, Antiochus... Antiochus, if he could have gotten all of his forces together and sent them down south, he might have obliterated this whole Maccabean revolt before it got up on its legs. But he wasn't able to do that because as God ordained, the Parthian Empire then invaded from the east and he was now busy on the other side of his empire where he'd eventually die fighting against those Parthians up there. And so this takes root and we will see the beginning of the end for the Greek Empire. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. I think that's that revolt. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. I think it's the end of this empire. For it still awaits the appointed time. You might remember that Daniel is hearing this and he's already been told of the four beasts that are coming out. The earth, and he already knows that the third of those beasts is Greece. I, I think he's probably made that connection now too. That's this beast. But there's an appointed time for the last one, the final one that will rise up, Rome. And we're going to see that in upcoming weeks. I want to provide a little bit of application as we land today. I want you to consider with me this period of history. In Israel at this time, there really were three groups of people. And I know we could subcategorize this out ad nauseum, but there really were three groups. There were the Greeks. This is those who hated God. And they made no pretense otherwise. We don't follow your God. We have our own gods. Stop following your gods and follow ours. This was Greeks. They were the invaders. They were the pagans. They were the elites. The Gentiles. Second group, the faithless Jews the Jews who denied and rejected their God and their religion, those who made a pretense of loving God. Oh, we love God. Oh, we're Jewish too. Uh, Abraham's our father. Come with us as we worship Hercules. Abraham's our father. You don't need circumcision. Abraham's our father. Moses is our father. But so what? Work on the Sabbath. It's better. It's the Greek way, man. They pretended to love and follow God, but secretly they loved the world. And that secret love of the world became evident to all in short order, they were the first to compromise. And they weren't reluctant to do so. In fact, they wanted to be more like the world. Man, the world's, they got something here. If we just do what they do, look at how, look at how great things could turn out. They were eager to shape the Old Testament church of God, the ecclesia of God, the gathering of God, the people of the Lord in the Old Testament into something new. So we have Greeks, they were just Gentiles. We have the faithless Jews. They say they love God, but secretly they hate him. And then, third group, the faithful Jews. The faithful Jews. The ones who, no matter what, bloodshed, plundering, fire, all kinds of atrocious death, they were not willing to forsake their God or the truth. These are our people. This is the Old Testament Church, These are, this is our family history. This is brothers and sisters of God all the way back to the Old Testament who are willing to give their lives for their faith. And they ought not be forgotten. They refused to compromise. 
Their faithfulness should be celebrated. And I actually think that not only in Daniel 11 are we seeing a celebration of this and they look at these, look at these faithful people, but again in Hebrews chapter 11. We covered Hebrews uh, not long ago. It was the last New Testament book we covered. And by the time we got to chapter 11, we were moving pretty quick at this part. I want to read for you chapter 11, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That's Hebrews eleven thirty-five. 35. It's listed in the roll call of history. It tells of all the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to give their lives and suffer and sacrifice greatly because they had faith. And they are the, the people reading the book of Hebrews, us included, should be encouraged by that. Who do you think these people are? The ones who were tortured, women who were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Can you think of another time in Jewish history where Jews were tortured to turn against their God prior to Jesus? I think it's this time. And the New Testament authors celebrate this and say, look at these brothers and sisters as an example of steadfastness and faithfulness. You might have picked up on it as I said it, but I think we have the exact same three groups in our culture today. I think we have the Gentile pagan world. And when I I say that is those who hate God and know it, and they say it, they make no pretense of loving God or Christ or the word or truth. They'll be the first ones to say, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in any of your gods. They're all false to me. And the only thing good they've got going for them is that they're honest about it. I don't love your God. I don't follow his word. In fact, I think that Christianity is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's a blight on the West. Every sin and bad thing that's happened in the West is because of you crazy Christians. We got to do everything in our power to get rid of you guys and progress you out of that to something new. I think that's a group we have in our culture around us. But we also have that second group faithless so-called Christians. Faithless so-called Christians. Those are like many presidents that we've had who say, I'm Christian, and then go on to slaughter babies. Exalt in all levels of worldly debauchery. Anyone can say they're a Christian. We have millions of them in our country who claim to be those faithful Jews, claim to be those faithful believers in Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian, just like anybody else. And look, look what Christians do. Christians celebrate debauchery and slaughter infants. Christians steal and undermine and lie. That's what Christians do. They're false believers. They're not really Christians. That group exists. And what is that group trying to do in our day? They're trying to turn the temple of God into a temple of Zeus. It's what they do. They take the New Testament institution of the church and they are working their butts off trying to make it something that God despises. And they will use all manner of lies and hatred and wickedness in order to make that happen. And the third group, of course, faithful believers, as there always have been and always will be, a remnant of faithful people who are willing to give their very lives, lay down their lives to obey and follow God. These are those that we pray and hope that we can be numbered amongst. Lord, let me be listed with the martyrs. If you're not a believer today, you need to know there's only one true gospel. And that second group, the first group doesn't want you to have any gospel. They're not going to tell you anything about this. They want you to be just like them, hating God. But there is a large group of people out there will say that they're Christian and they will tell you a false gospel and it does not fit with his word so they'll tell you don't read his word. They'll say it brings division because it does. It absolutely does. Divides between truth and error. And they're going to say it's not worth it. 
They're going to say, look at how different these things are, what's written in the Word from what you see around you. Don't you, isn't it self-evident to you that all these things we do today are right and good and we should reject everything of old? You need to know the truth. You and I, because of our sin, deserve hell, judgment and punishment before a holy God. Forever, we deserve judgment. Our nation deserves judgment for our wickedness. Every day, every moment that we are not snuffed off the face of the earth is yet another demonstration of the mercy of God for what we deserve. And you deserve it too. It's not just they out there. But there's a hope for us because God sent his only son, the only one who lived perfectly, who didn't deserve any death, didn't deserve any pain, any punishment. And this Jesus who lived and walked perfectly and taught with authority, went to the cross, was mocked, brutalized, tortured like these we're talking about, spit upon and killed. He died to satisfy the wrath of God due for us. He took the punishment due to us on himself. And the only way that you can have the trade that that will apply to you is by believing him, believing in him. Reject the lies of the world. Repent of the sins that have bound you to this earth and turn in faith to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It is your only hope. And anyone who tells you otherwise is probably in that second camp. We must remain faithful. No compromise. We must be aware of the temptation to conform to the world. There is nothing more important than this. These temptations are going to come after you and after your children after you and their children after them. Practical application for you, brothers and sisters. I I, I challenge you to find an area in your life. Do some introspection on this. Find an area in your life where you have already started a slow compromise. Or perhaps an area in your life where you know, I'm kind of wide open for compromise. This is is an avenue that I have provided for the world to have influence over me. They shouldn't. And then fight it. Tooth and nail. Fight it like scrappy, like scrappy street fight where you bite and kick and scratch and gouge. No rules. That kind of fight against that sin, against that temptation in your life. Just you. I'm not, I'm not saying spouses tell your, other, not your spouse what hers is or what his is. No, no, no. You, you. Inspect in your life. Get brothers and sisters around you that you can share what's going on in your life. And if, and if you're having a hard time underst- figuring out, where's, where's the place that I'd be most susceptible to compromise in my life? But maybe that brother or that sister could look at you and say, you, you want, me to, want me to tell you? Okay. I, maybe this area you should dial in on. Not, not heavy judgment, not trying to nitpick, not witch hunting over all of your little issues, but to serve you well, that we would not be the kind of people that would compromise when the day comes. We live in very divisive and divided times. SCOTUS ruling, leak, Abortion stuff, Elon Musk and Twitter, Ministry of Truth, Russia and Ukraine, pro-abortion backlash, which everyone's waiting for right now, rumors of economic crashes and famines, supply chain issues. The list goes on and on. But we are not the first of God's people to live through harsh times. In fact, our times seem like paradise compared to those who've come before us. And like them, we must remain faithful at all costs. We must never compromise. I read this in history, 2 Maccabees chapter 7. It's an entire chapter 
telling about a horrific event that took place. And seven brothers were tortured to deny their Christ, and they brought their mother in to observe and watch the gruesome, terrible things they're talking. Not like one little line given, a solid paragraph of all how exquisite their torture was and prolonged their pain for each one of these brothers down the line. And they had, by the, fine, the t- time they had tortured to death the sixth one who would not reject Christ, reject their God, Old Testament. They finally turn. Antiochus was present, and he turns to the seventh son. He's furious with him, enraged. And he says, if you will just, this is what they had to do, eat this pig's flesh. Guys, bacon. If you'll just eat this piece of bacon, I will give you not only your life, I will pay you. You'll be considered a king's friend. You'll be a made man. Six brothers had already died. The seventh, the youngest son, is standing there. Antiochus turns to the mother who's watched all of this horrific stuff go down. And he says, plead with your son to give his life over to me. And he will be fine. He'll walk, you walk right out of here. This is what happens next. But leaning close to him, she, the mother, spoke in their native language as follows, deriding the cruel tyrant. My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at heaven and the earth and see everything that's in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again along with your brothers. We are a part of a rich heritage of faithful people. What a waste to compromise on anything, any area, when we have a history and a lineage like that. Let's pray. Father, you are so kind to us. You provide for us. You care for us. You have written these things down for us in your word, and they've even been recorded in history, like in the Maccabees, that we can look back at these stories and be encouraged and reminded by those who've come before us in way worse circumstances than we endure. I pray that we would be spurred on towards faithfulness. I pray that you would help myself, my own family, and my dear brothers and sisters here to inspect their lives and find out where might they be weak, that they need to be strengthened for the battles that are coming in the future, for their heart, for their affections, for their attention, for their time even for their souls. Lord, please equip us, build us up. Help us to honor you and your holy and glorious name. Help us to not think that we can rely upon stubbornness, tough guy attitudes if the day were to come. Help us to treasure you so much that we couldn't begin to imagine giving anything else, even freedom and life, to profane your name. Lord, we love you and ask for your help as we seek to worship you more and better each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.